When I say that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema are on the same side of Lester Maddox and Bull Connor and George Wallace, I'm not saying that they're putting water hose on me. But what I am saying is that they are just as large an impediment to justice for the Negro as these individuals were. Hello and welcome to the interview. I'm Aidan McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. My guest this week is Bakari Sellers, an attorney, democratic politician, CNN political commentator, and author. His first book, a memoir of growing up black and working class in the South, called My Vanishing Country, was a New York Times bestseller. Bakari is out now with a new book, this time a children's book, called Who Are Your People? And it's a tribute to his family, history, and culture. I called up Bakari on Tuesday to discuss MLK Day. His father, a famous uh, civil rights activist named Cleveland Sellers, was good friends with Martin Luther King Jr. We also discussed voting rights, the trials and tribulations of the Biden administration, media coverage of the current president, and his take on the cable news industry. Bakari, thanks so much for coming on the show. How are you doing? Man, I'm doing great. I'm a little tired this morning. My, my twins wore us out last night, but oh, as it's a no, they're three-year-old twins, man. So it is it is exactly what you expect it to be. Yep. So speaking of your twins, uh, Sadie and Stokely, your new book is inspired by them. What can you tell us about the book? So, I mean, for me, it was about representation. Uh, it was about uh, giving my children, Sadie and Stokely, images where they could see themselves in the, in the pictures, in the illustrations. It was about meeting this moment. Um, because there are a lot of people who are having questions about how do they teach young people or have conversations about race. Um, it was about sharing our story. And uh, while people, while we're on this podcast uh, talking about books, there are people who are talking about burning books and how to eliminate books. And so I just want to be on the right side of history. And I think um, Who Are Your People does all of those things. And last but not least, it's a book of, of hope and inspiration and maybe Maybe I'm just not yet jaded in my 37 years, but I still believe hope and inspiration actually matter. So the, the book comes at an interesting time, <clears throat> I feel, for children's books, because there's now a, a debate in this country about critical race theory in schools, whether that's being taught, what that means, et cetera. Have you run into problems with the book, given this sort of newfound opposition to teaching racial history in schools? I think one of the blessings is that the book just came out uh, on January 11th. And a lot of the issues that we're running into are purely kind of um, social media issues, anecdotal issues. Why are you right. trying to brainwash our children? Um, I think as you begin to see more and more teachers, and you know, teachers have come up to me, principals have come up to me. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking, I'm doing book readings at, um, at elementary schools, right? Um, and they're saying, regardless of what the school board may say, or regardless of what this person may say, we're gonna make sure that it's in the, in the uh, in the schools, and so we've been on the offensive, and we're not going to get caught um, on our heels. There, there may be places that don't want this book, but we're going to do our do our best to put it in the hands of as many kids as possible. The weirdest thing about the like critical race theories in school debate is that like a, a book like yours, or your people, it's like it's so far from brainwashing. You know, it's about representation. It's about showing like black kids someone of their skin color in children's books, and about teaching history. Right? There's nothing controversial about that. But I mean, I think that this is a, this is way down the rabbit hole. But what you have here is is a political talking point that people can't define. Right. You know, critical race theory was 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 um, 
I don't want to say created, but developed in the in the early 70s um, as somewhat of a diagnosis of what was uh, the, the larger issues with the civil rights movement dissipating in those organizations and why. And it became a legal theory in which you studied uh, the, the way that the law intersected with race. And then in 1989, you have Kimberly Crenshaw and others who actually came up with that name of critical race theory and, and fleshed it out. It ain't even taught in K through 12. <laughs> so, so for us to be having a discussion and people utilizing that as, as the reasoning why is, is just is, is silly at best. Uh, now, uh, sorry for going down that rabbit hole. I don't know why I had to dump that out of my head, but I, I apologize <laughs> to your listeners. The annoying thing about talking, even talking about it, is that it's such the terms are so complex to define that you have to like get into an academic discussion to yeah. even know what you're talking about. Yes, it's, like, it's not even suited for cable news. You know? <laughs> to even talk about a book for four to eight year olds. Yes, <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, now, the book is called "Who Are Your People," and you you come from quite quite incredible people. Your your father, Cleveland Sellers, was a famous civil rights activist. He knew Martin Luther King. What did you make of the discourse uh, on MLK Day this year? It's infantile. Um, right. But my dad, my dad was really close to King. In fact, I joke, uh, people don't necessarily find my joke to be funny, but Dr. King performed my dad's first wedding, uh, which was an utter failure. And I, always, I tell folks, Dr. King didn't get everything right. Right. So, <laughs> um, so that, that fell apart pretty quickly. Uh, but my dad and King were really, really close. Um, you know, their relationship was one that was sometimes tense, not because of any personality, but because of the way they went about the movement. My dad was a member of SNCC. King was a member of SCLC. And their protest tactics were different. When you look back at this past Monday, though, it's kind of, what is it, wash, rinse, repeat? Uh, because you have Republicans who always go out and post the King quote, then you have Democrats who come back and say, your actions aren't how King lived. And then you have the FBI coming out here, channeling their inner OJ Simpson, like, if I did it. Like, what? I don't know what is going on here. So it becomes, it becomes somewhat cyclical. And I just sit back and I was really waiting to see what Kirsten Sinema was going to post. Right. Uh, and, and, and look at the, look at the fact that she probably suffered one of the, the worst ratios in the history of, of the Twitter the, the Twitter dump. I saw that. That was brutal. It's funny. I was reading, there's this very far right uh, writer that uh, I was reading. He, he wrote a piece about how conservatives should not claim Martin Luther King Jr. And he was basically saying what, what the left argues, which is that Martin Luther King Jr. was more radical than his, his portrayal is now. Do you see that as, as something that's been lost in, in discourse around Martin Luther King uh, so uh, I don't talk about Dr. King that often. In fact, in my first book, uh, My Vanishing Country, I talk about the reason why I don't talk about King that much, uh, because I believe that his legacy has been somewhat perverted. People act like uh, he was a docile Negro who died in his sleep, right? They don't, they don't talk about the revolutionary. They don't talk about the fact that Dr. King died in, in 68. His last Gallup approval rating done was done in, I believe, 64 and he had like a 30% approval rating. His approval rating at the time of his death was lower than, than Donald Trump's approval rating, right? So he was, he was somebody who uh, had drew the ire of an entire country, particularly the South. And so I, this whole reverence, and then people ask this question like, you know, um, uh, what would Dr. King do if he was alive today? Well, you killed him. I mean, what are we talking about? Like he's assassinated. <laughs> like he was taken from us in the most 
visceral way possible. And so when you when you think about these things, you have letters from the FBI telling him that she, he should kill himself. Uh, you know, this is this is the man who now you want to. And, and a lot of my colleagues on the right, it, it's so intellectually dishonest because they think that he just gave us one quote. They say, you know, the quote of judge by the content of the care of your character, not the color of your skin. And I'm like, well, you know, he was a lot more complex than that. He was a revolutionary who actually died. People forget that he was in Memphis, Tennessee. He was he was uh, protesting with striking sanitation workers because of their working conditions. He was fighting for fair labor laws, equity and equality when he died. And people just people forget that. Mm. Now, this is a big week for voting rights legislation uh, in, in the United States, in, in, in theory, in right? Theory. Yeah. Well, that's what I kind of wanted to talk to you about. So Democrats are trying to pass this and the measures are pretty much doomed in the Senate because Democrats don't have much of a majority. Do you think it was a mistake for the Biden administration to push so hard on these measures that were likely doomed to fail? Or do you think it's important to get, you know, these two Democrats and Republicans on the record as opposing those measures? Well, getting them on the record is important. Right. Um, I think it's going to have more impact on cinema than Mansion. I also push back on the framing of your question a little bit because mm-hmm. I don't want to put Mansion and Cinema in the pot alone because I think they're probably two or more, two or three more people that right. go in that pot with them. They just don't like the attention like Mansion and Cinema. Um, I'm interested to see what Coons does. I'm interested to see what Mark Kelly does. I questioned Tester, and then I got a scathing note from somebody in Tester World. By the way, I didn't know Tester World was a thing, but it's a thing. <laughs> who made it clear that he Tester heads. Tester heads, right? <laughs> that he, that he, uh, that he uh, opposes eliminating the filibuster, but does agree with narrowing the filibuster for the purposes of voting rights. So shout out to John Tester or whoever sent me that that right. note to get me on the right right path. Um, I would have to vote every thirty days if we're being honest. Um, but I think you have to put as much pressure on these folks as possible. I mean, the, the fact is, back to King. King in uh, his April of of uh, Damn, when was the letter from the Birmingham jail written? Anyway, in his letter from the Birmingham, I just went blank. In his letter from the Birmingham jail, he talked about the white moderate and how the white moderate was the greatest impediment to Negro success in this country, even greater than the white citizens counselor or the KKK, because they wanted to preserve order over justice. I mean, what is the filibuster? Preserving order over justice. And it's not as if the filibuster is something that's untouchable. They just narrowed the filibuster to pass an increase in the debt ceiling. Uh, we know what Mitch McConnell's done with the filibuster to appoint three Supreme Court justices. Um, if we don't do it for voting rights, what are we really doing? Hmm. The conversation has always struck me as, as, a, as an odd debate because you know whenever I have a Trump supporter on this show, you know whether it's recently it was Sean Spicer and Sean Hannity, I asked him about whoa, whoa, whoa. the twenty. You've had Sean Hannity. Yeah, Sean Hannity a couple two months ago or something. It was in, it was a it was Sean Hannity is not Sean Spicer. I mean, no. let's, they're they're not. I actually, I actually, uh, Spicer. I, I don't know if he would still consider me a friend. I, we're probably associates now. But yeah. you know, I drink with Spicer. I mean, Spicer yeah. is 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 more of a character of of the DC political circus. I don't right. think he's a bad person. I think that he kind of got consumed by the overwhelming nature and personality of Donald Trump. And I think right. he'll eventually shake out of that. But well, I when you when you talk like when I talk to him, you know, we I had him on for like 30 minutes and you you get it, he's very reasonable. He's also very smart. Like he knows Spicer, an enormous amount about the process. Um, because people forget where he came from. He's a party. Right. Like right. Sean Spicer is a party hack. 
That's yeah. where he, him and Ryan, Reince, I never get his name right. People, Reince, Primus. Reince. he and Reince <laughs> are party hacks. Right. And, um, you know, it's just, they, they're totally different creatures than Sean Hannity, but I'm gonna have to go back and listen to both of those. I'm glad that you mentioned it. They are, yeah, the, the, the Hannity one gets a little testy, but I think it's interesting. And the Spicer one, yeah, the Spicer one was fascinating, but you know, one argument that they always make about 2020, you know, when you ask them about whether they think the election was stolen is, and this is probably the more reasonable argument that they make, is that Democrats changed the rules before the weeks before the election to expand voting access during the pandemic. And their argument is that that was a bad thing. And the obvious follow-up that I always have, and I think it applies to the Democratic voting measures that are being pushed through right now, is that isn't making voting easier inherently good? Like it, it, there's, there's. So first of all, let's 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 backtrack because right. there are legislatures like the Pennsylvania legislature, which is the furthest thing from a Democratic legislature, which passed these changes so people could vote in the pandemic, mm. right? I don't think, and and I and I am. The, the level of fraud that they believe was there was not. In fact, making voting inherently easier should be what we're doing. Mm. But in low turnout elections, i.e. Virginia, i.e. the mayor of Columbia, South Carolina that just happened, Republicans do extremely well. So, you know, this, this gamesmanship is pretty transparent. I do think, however, that one of the things that Democrats in terms of voting rights haven't necessarily kept their eye on the ball is the necessity for preclearance. If you gave me preclearance, I, I, I'm cool. That's, right. that's, that for me is the game changer, but as we know, John Roberts gutted that. And I, I think that it's necessary to be codified. Right, and uh, just for our, our listeners who don't know, the preclearance is that states have to get approval before approval from the federal government, DOJ, for before making changes to how vote is carried out in their states. Correct. Correct. And it's only certain states. It's states that mm -hmm. have a history of transgression. Right. Now, a, a lot of the, the rhetoric around voting rights has been has been a, a little intense, right? So uh, Joe Biden said in his speech last week that those who oppose the measures uh, in favor of voting rights are on the side of segregationists. And that prompted a lot of outrage from the right. And a lot of other Democrats have referred to voting, uh, Republican voting measures as 21st century Jim Crow. I've also seen some Democrats say that, well, the stakes, you know, the stakes here are being exaggerated a little bit. The measures being passed by Republicans are bad, but they're not stripping away anyone's right to vote. W what do you make of that? I think that that is a privileged statement to make. Okay. I think that in certain areas you have things like in order to cast an absentee ballot, the individual has to get it notarized, which comes with a cost, right? You literally have to ask somebody to come to your house and notarize. I think that the impediments that people make uh, to casting a ballot are just uh, anti-democratic. Uh, and I think that, that we have to recognize that. Now, are people counting jelly beans? No, but how did people feel about, well, Negroes should have been able to count jelly beans, right? I mean, that was that was the statement then. Like, as the statement is now, you should be able to overcome these impediments. And I just find that to be a privileged, intellectually dishonest statement. Mm -hmm. um, I think that what's the opposition, for example, let's take piece by piece of Bakari Seller's dream. What's the opposition to making uh, uh, an election day a federal holiday? What's the opposition to putting that... Um, on a Saturday? What's the opposition to having 30 to 45 days of early voting? What's the opposition to having 
drop boxes and we have a per, you know, a number, you know, you have one drop box per, I don't know, 15,000. I don't know what the number is. You know, why can't we have uh, these pieces of things that make it easier for individuals to cast a ballot? And when you have people trying to um, um, tamper with that and narrow that construction, it just gets, for me, that, that fundamentally bothers me because of the price that was paid to get that right to vote. And, you know, I can't fathom another argument against making voting easier other than the, that it would lead to more fraud. And as we've seen, it hasn't led to more fraud. In no, well, we've seen fraud. No, trust right. me. We've seen fraud. It just has been Republicans who, like, vote for their dead wives and stuff like yeah. that. And like a handful in certain states, right? Like nothing, nothing that would, would sway any of the, the results of an election. But I do want to ask about, about rhetoric again, but because, you know, there was, a, there was one quote from Jake Tapper that I found interesting. I think it was on State of the Union a couple of Sundays ago. And he said, but you're comparing or Biden is comparing and you're not criticizing the idea of a legislator reducing the number of days for early voting from 15 to 10 or wanting voters to present a photo ID before they vote. You're comparing that to Bull Connor, who literally set dogs upon civil rights protesters. George Wallace, who said segregation today, segregation forever. I'm paraphrasing. Or, or Jefferson Davis, the president of the traitorous Confederacy. I mean, isn't that a little stark? Do you think that the rhetoric is stark? You know, even if even if the, the stakes are no, this no because because of the stakes, right? Because of the because of what I mean, what what are we supposed to do? Be dishonest? I mean, the fact is that the side you're taking is the same side that's been taken before by these individuals. I mean, back to King's letter from the Birmingham jail, right? When he compared the white moderate to the white citizens counselor, the KKK, he didn't say that you were burning crosses on our yard. He didn't say that you were lynching us, but what he did say was that you were trying to preserve order over justice and you are just as, a, as much of an impediment as they are. And so, yes, when I say that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema are on the same side of Lester Maddox and Bull Connor and George Wallace, I'm not saying that they're putting water hose on me. But what I am saying is that they are just as large an impediment to justice for the Negro as these individuals were. Now, Man, I, I, a good answer. I should have been on Jake that day. I'm, that answer <laughs> might have gone viral. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm sure media, media would have covered that moment, I'm sure. <laughs> For uh, sure. Now, I, I want to talk about the, the Biden administration a little bit. You have defended the performance of Vice President Kamala Harris. Uh, it's funny because you say I defended her. Some of my right. friends are like, oh, my God, you gave her a B minus. I'm like, a B minus for me? Now, I would have taken that in law school. Was I, was, I was watching you on, on The Breakfast Club yesterday. And, and you did say that like some of your comments, like you, you'll get called up to like Kamala Harris's office or something. They'll get, they'll get pissed at you for that. But yeah, I, I thought B minus was like a fair, you know, you're not giving her like an A plus or something. Like that's, yeah. that's a sense. I got to keep credibility. All right. I mean, you got to be yeah. honest and clear eyed. I mean. Look, you got to give this administration credit for the things they've done. Right. They've gotten shots in arms. The COVID relief package was amazing. It kept people afloat. Transportation dollars. The biggest problem with transportation dollars is the fact that people won't necessarily fill it in their pockets. And the disconnect, the largest disconnect for this administration is sometimes you don't think that they understand or comprehend the pain that's going on in the streets when it comes to inflation prices and, and Omicron, different things that are going on and how it's all converging at one time. 
But also I made note that some of these things, you know, they're not in the Senate, right? However, we have to be creative in finding ways to combat. And one of the, one of the biggest pushbacks that people give me, other than, you know, you should never be, as a Democrat, you should never be critical of your administration, which is bullshit. Yeah. I'm always, they're like, what is your plan? What would you tell them to do? And I'm like, look, have your Department of Justice, and I understand the, in, the independence, this is not what we're talking about, but have your Department of Justice make sure that they are in these states that are passing these regressive laws, they're being proactive in challenging them, and they're doing everything they can under the law or challenging the law to ensure people have the right to vote. Utilize the Department of Justice as a sword for voting rights. And then executive action. What executive actions can you take? Can you make it a federal holiday? I don't know the answer to that. Can you do early voting? I don't know the answer to that. But let's challenge it and let's be proactive on this issue of great importance. Why do you think Harris gets such a bad rap from the press? I mean, there were a lot of reports. The, the reason I say you defended her because you know a couple of weeks ago, there were a lot of reports that there was dysfunction in her office. And you said that that was nonsense. Like, I mean, yeah, that, that article had three dozen people they sources. saw. Yeah. And eight were on the record. Mm. That just seemed a little off balance to me. Mm -hmm. um, and I was just up there, like talking to folk, and it was like no dysfunction. <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> chaos in the, uh, the VP's office. Around, like, oh my God, I'm getting fired. The pleasure. <laughs> no, it was just like, it was just like a normal office. Yeah. Um, to be honest, I think that covering a Black woman as vice president is tough, mainly because the media, the Washington media, ain't never seen it before. So it's, it's a combination that there's a lack of diversity in our newsrooms, mm. but then they've, they're covering something they've never seen before. I mean, the best image that I've seen is like all the dots of like vice presidents and you have all these little white dots and then you have this black dot with long hair, right? right? And so I think that has a lot to do with it. The second thing is Kamala is extremely talented and it's difficult being in the position of vice president because a lot of people forget that the vice president somewhat is supposed to be um, kind of seen, not heard. And also the vice president can't go further than the president. Like she can't be more progressive than the person across the street. She can't have this idea. So it's, a, it's an interesting position for her to be in. And last but not least, what people don't give her enough credit for, and this is what I've said, and I will say to I'm blue in the face, when she went into this position, there were people who literally questioned whether or not she would be a team player. She would always get the question about when are you running for president in 2024 when she's done nothing but stand there, take it, right. be a great colleague, friend, associate, choir member, whatever Joe Biden needed. And I'm not sure she gets the credit for that. Are you ready to vote for Liz Cheney in 2024 when, uh, when Biden? No, I actually, 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 I'm looking forward to the DeSantis uh, mansion ticket. That, right. that is, yeah. what I think is probably going to be most I mean, likely that, that type of machismo. I mean, that is going to be a, a ticket that is just going to ooze macho all over oh, yeah. the yeah, I can't wait. <laughs> now, does it worry you when you see Joe Biden's approval rating hovering around where Trump's was after the Capitol riot? Um, no, I mean, approval ratings right now don't matter. I mean, Barack Obama's we're just so, we're too far. We're, we're too far. The, the truth. And this is when I get in trouble for telling you the truth. Oh, I can go for it. Like We're going to we're, we're going to get like dog walked in the midterms in the house. Yeah. I mean, that is just a fact, like, that's a thing. And a lot of it has to do with the president's approval rating, but in terms of his reelection, 
That's too far out. Uh, Barack right. Obama's approval rating was about probably the same thing right about now. It's kind of far out. Uh, if Joe Biden's going to run again. I mean, if the election was today, he'd run again. And like he said, if he's in good health, he'll run again. Um, so I anticipate the best thing that can happen to Joe Biden is Donald Trump. The best thing that can happen to Joe Biden is Donald Trump waiting until the last minute to announce he's not going to run. Mm-hmm. So both of those things are very helpful. I, I am only focused on one thing, and I think it's the only Democratic hope. Well, two things. Um, voting rights and criminal justice reform and actually passing the things we promised as a focus, but to the United States Senate. I mean, the fact is we have to win and there's no greater mismatch in, a, in, in capacity and ability than the Georgia Senate race between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. Really? Um, I mean, uh, the, the, it, those two on a debate stage is not going to be, is it, an utter mismatch. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's Mike Tyson versus Bruno. I mean, this yeah. is just not a thing. Um, I think that they have to do that. We have to do well in North Carolina with Sherry Beasley. We have to do well in Wisconsin with Mandela Barnes. We have to preserve Nevada. And we have to, I don't think anybody's up in Arizona. Um, but we have to win a couple of these toss-ups and win Pennsylvania. Speaking of Trump, do you, you know, I, lo- I know a lot of Democrats uh, don't like that the media continues to cover him because they think it's sort of propping him up but he's obviously remains the de facto leader of the Republican party. Like, do you have a problem with that? I mean, look, I, he is the, I mean, it's a tough thing. Like it's, it's six and one, like he is the leader of the Republican party. Like this is his party. So how would you not cover him? Mm. I don't think you need to be retweeting his announcements on letterhead about his golf course. I don't know if you <laughs> saw that. Like he just like the blue wall at the some craziest thing, the blue monster. <laughs> yeah. On, he, on King day. That's what he tweeted on King day. Like for people that didn't see this, he, he tweeted, he sent out a statement. He can't tweet anymore. He sent out a statement on the official office of the former president letterhead promoting a new golf course outside of Miami and like the new Doral like resort to go along with it, which is just unbelievable. Now, you know, I may go play it, but don't tell me. <laughs> <laughs> but, but like, I don't think you need to be retweeting that. Right. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that the Republican Party, if they can get out of the shadow of Donald Trump has to thread a very narrow needle, which is they have some very talented folk in that party. Um, Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, um, you know, that people forget that, that Christie won two elections mm. in New Jersey, Larry Hogan won two elections. Um, they have some business folk. They have some very talented people that if they thread the needle of, of like abandoning that racism and xenophobia and bigotry, uh, don't know if they can do that. And, and, and finding some middle somewhere that they, they could possibly be finally be uh, electable on a national level, but that's tough for them to do. Hmm. Now, uh, among your many titles, most importantly for media, you are a cable news commentator. Uh, you're a political commentator on CNN. What has it been like appearing on cable news during the pandemic? I assume you've been been fully virtual. There's no more no more green rooms in your life in the last two years. No, it's it's tough. I got some stuff I can't talk about just yet that's emerging. Um, that's coming coming soon in the next couple of weeks. Some dope stuff. CNN gave me one of the most amazing opportunities. I mean, you have to think I'm from a town where we have three stoplights and a blinking light, where it's thirty three hundred people, and every night I'm on with Don Lemon or or. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the mornings I'm on with John Berman and Allison and I'm speaking to a million people. Um, I was, I've been able to see the ebb and flow of cable news because when I got hired in 2015, 
it was still Barack Obama and we were still talking about policy. There were the, the emotion that's tied to that, uh, that timing in our country is vastly different than the emotion during the Trump years. I mean, we would have robust policy discussions about the direction of the country under Barack Obama. Then we would have those dips because there were far too many school shootings, et cetera. But it was really emotional during those times. It, it tapped into something totally different in Trump because it was such a visceral response to that type of ism, that sexism, racism, bigotry, xenophobia. Um, and it was weird because the policy discussions were enveloped in populism. It was Trump had the same talking points about populism that Bernie Sanders had. So it was a weird, weird uh, mixture. And you saw uh, people really pay attention. And the last thing I'll tell you about this is that there's this, over the past four years, we've seen this weird intersection between pop culture, sports, entertainment, and politics. And so now when you go out, I'll never forget, I was at Catch in, in Beverly Hills in LA, and I was with my good friend, Lawrence Bender, and Marlon Wayans came up. And he was like, man, I watch you every night on Don Lemon. And you're like, what? Like, <laughs> That's like, yeah. like It's like this weird thing that goes on where uh, people, they want to just talk politics with you. And it's this intersection. I, I am um, fortunate. Are there, are there things we could do better? Probably. Are there stories we should cover more? Probably. But we'll get it right. Right. Do you watch Fox News ever? Not anymore. Um, because it's exhausting. When I was in law school, I watched it every day. In fact, this is going to date me. But when I was in law school, I would tape, um, I would tape the O'Reilly Factor in 106 and Park every day. 106 and, and Park and the O'Reilly Factor. Yeah, okay. my, dad, my dad had this theory that you had to know what people were saying about you. Yeah. So that's why I would watch the O'Reilly Factor. Now yeah. there's nothing like I, I, I think that Laura Ingram is just an unabashed uh, uh, racist who uh, traffics in racism and different different things to, to sell. I, and it, it bothers me. Um, I think Hannity is brilliant. Um, and I, I think he knows exactly what he's doing. Um, I think that uh, Chris Wallace and Jake Tapper are the two best uh, interviewers in all of TV. Mm. I mean, I just think that the way that they conduct interviews is special. Um, the Five is is an interesting show. Is that the morning show or that? The That's morning the 5 p.m. like panel show. No, what's the morning show called? Fox and Friends? Fox and Friends. Right. Fox and Friends, it's interesting because it drives the narrative. One of the challenges I'll give you is mm -hmm. something I, I gave a class when I taught at the University of Chicago. Um, I want you for one week, 30 minutes a day to watch Fox and Friends. The next week, I want you to watch CNN New Day. And the next week, I want you to watch Morning Joe. And then let's have a conversation in three weeks after you watch those three shows. You would, you would realize that they're like completely two different worlds that people are talking about. Right. And I think that, you know, it, it, the people that watch Fox News and the watch MSNBC are very much siloed in those worlds. So they're operating with like a completely different set of facts, which is fascinating. Uh, is there anyone at Fox News right now that you that you admire? Well, I mean, I, it, it's crazy because I did. I, I honestly admired I admire Chris Wallace. I, right. I, but now he's at CNN. Your I just new, got a new colleague. <laughs> I know. I just got a chance to do a uh, to do a, a, a little thing with him. And I was like, what's up, Chris? Like, I love you, dude. Like, your <laughs> interviews are like, this. like, I'm a political geek. So, like, watching Chris Wallace interview Pete Buttigieg, like, watching oh, him amazing. spar is yeah. amazing. Like, that's what you imagine it to be. Uh, I like Juan Williams. Um, um, I like uh, um, Payne, who's on 
who's on Fox Business sometimes right. does, does Fox. He's a very smart economist. Yeah. Um, um, Geraldo is cool every now and then. <laughs> um, you know, I weirdly enough, I know Tucker. Like I, I remember Tucker from Crossfire days. Yeah. Like he was a totally different person than he is now. And I actually think Tucker Carlson's a long shot to be the Republican nominee for president. Um, don't admire Tucker though. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I, I think that's about it, man. I don't, I don't watch it enough to have admiration for, for too many people. What's, I forget the young lady's name who has a midday show. Uh, Harris Faulkner. Maybe? Oh, I love Harris. Harris is yeah, dope. Yeah. Yeah. Harris is talented. I mean, yeah. Harris is extremely talented. She's a good interviewer. Um, but that's a, that's about it, man. That's all. My, I, uh, my last question, would you ever consider hosting a cable news show? Of course. Yeah. If the opportunity presented itself. <laughs> we'll wait and see. Uh, Bakari <laughs> Sellers, thank, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you. Shout out to everybody at Mediate for the work that you all do. Uh, you all uh, present us most times in our full light and honest light. And I just, you know, I appreciate that. Thank you, man. I appreciate that too. Appreciate for it. sure. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And check out coverage of my conversation with Bakari Sellers on Mediate.com.